Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Bishop's reflections on the prophet Isaiah continue this week, diving deep into his prophecies and connections to the New Testament. Questions? Email them to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with the Bishop of the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese, Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes. Thank you for joining us again. You're welcome, Kyle. Good to see you. We have a little bit of a cliffhanger from last week. We were talking about Isaiah, and you gave us a, a homework assignment. Right. And we were to, it was one of the songs of Isaiah. And you said there were three, right? No, that, those are the servant songs. This is the song of the vineyard. Song of the vineyard. And there's four servant songs. Four, but I know. four servant songs. <laughs> one song. Okay. All right. So, uh, what, what is your insights on this song of the vineyard? If you recall, I was talking about major themes in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Mm-hmm. We talked about his view of God. And this song of the vineyard really talks about the sins of Jerusalem and Judah, which is basically how human beings so often, you know, when they sin, they fail to have the humility to acknowledge God as the master. They rebel against him. It's a rebellion against God. So this song of the vineyard is a very beautiful Hebrew poetry, but it has a very important message. So why don't I read it's from chapter five of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He digged it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Hmm. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. I mean, that's quite a song. It expresses God's love for his people, the vineyard, of Mm -hmm. course, representing Israel. It's God's vineyard. And despite all that God had done, his vineyard, his people did not respond and did not yield grapes. Um, they had rejected God and his sovereignty. And then there was punishment mm-hmm. as God, the wall was broken down, it became a waste, etc. 
gives you a taste of what an oracle is in the prophets. And in this case, it's poetic. We see this image also to describe Israel in other prophets like Hosea. It recurs in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. So it's a very common image. And in the New Testament, it appears in our Lord's parable of the wicked tenants of a vineyard. Mm -hmm. If you remember that in Matthew chapter 21 and Mark chapter 12 and Luke chapter 20. So we can say in a way that the church is prefigured in the story of the vineyard. Also, the church is, as St. Paul wrote, a piece of land to be cultivated, the field of God. The true vine, as we read, is is the Gospel of John is Jesus who gives life and the power to bear abundant fruit, good fruit, to the branches, to us who, through the church, remain in Christ, without whom we can do nothing. So, so this image that we're so familiar with from the New Testament really goes back to the Old Testament and uh, this whole song of the vineyard. Before we kind of look more at the New Testament significance of the teachings of Isaiah, and really it gets to the core of Isaiah's teaching, and it's about a future Messiah, the promise that God makes about David and Jerusalem. As I mentioned earlier in our last episode, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, disappeared in the year 722 BC when it was conquered by the Assyrians. At that time, Isaiah taught that a remnant would be saved, which would become the nucleus for the revival of the fortunes of the people. He writes that only a tenth will be saved, mm -hmm. but that from the stump or the root will spring the branch of the Lord, the survivors. Now, it's interesting, Isaiah never uses the term Messiah. Other prophets do, but he doesn't. He always talks about a new king. Huh. So the one who's going to save the people is a king. He's mm -hmm. of the line of King David. This is what I mentioned in the last episode is royal messianism. You're all familiar, all our listeners will be familiar with this coming ideal king because we hear about him at uh, Midnight Mass. It's always the reading at Midnight Mass for Chris Christmas Midnight Mass, uh -huh. where Isaiah calls this person wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Sound familiar? Yeah. That's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. So this is the future savior that Isaiah prophesies. Jerusalem will also be a source of messianic peace for all the nations. That's another really important prophecy that I think everyone's familiar with. Chapter 2 of the prophet Isaiah, and I will read this, verses 1 to 5, because we hear it every three years on the first Sunday of Advent. And you can see why we have these readings in Advent because it's talking about the new king. Uh -huh. So chapter two of Isaiah, the first five verses, the word which Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains 
and shall be raised above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So Jerusalem will be this source for messianic peace for all the nations. Now, all these promises regarding the future Messiah really are concentrated in what is probably the most important verse of the whole book of Isaiah. Chapter 7, verse 14, which we hear on the fourth Sunday of Advent. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We read, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So, we have these different Emmanuel oracles in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Hmm. He'll be the eternal king. So they were to expect a new kingdom. In Deutero Isaiah, which is the second part of Isaiah, as I mentioned in the last episode, we hear about the universal scope of salvation. This Deutero Isaiah was compiled during the people's exile in Babylon It focused on the role of Israel among the nations and that the people of God would be an instrument of salvation. And they have the mission to be a mediator between God and all the other nations that God had chosen this people for that mission. And then at the end or very near the end of the whole book of of, um, Isaiah, He speaks about a new Jerusalem and a glorious future when the people are back from exile. That's part of third Isaiah. You probably heard this before, chapter 65, verses 17 to 25. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed." They shall build houses and inherit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their children with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. 
The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So this kind of is similar to the images in the first part of the book, this era of messianic peace. The messianic peace that will even affect the world of nature. So it's, again, very beautiful. Yeah. Coming up, we'll talk more about Isaiah right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, here with our bishop. And Bishop, you've been doing such a great job explaining the prophet Isaiah and different roles that he played. How did the New Testament and early church look at these various prophecies and messages? Well, if you read the New Testament, the book of Isaiah is quoted explicitly 90 times. Huh. Other than the Psalms, this is the most the book of the Old Testament that's quoted most in the New Testament, next to the Psalms. Uh-huh. But then you could say, really, the book of Isaiah is is really mentioned about four hundred times implicitly. Okay, so ninety times explicitly, four hundred times implicitly. So, so this was a very important book. And sometimes that's by Jesus, and sometimes right. by Saint, Saint Paul. Paul or, sure. Right. Each of the evangelists, mm-hmm. um, yeah, St. Peter and his letter. Okay. Uh, let me give you an example. At the very beginning of his preaching, Jesus, when he went to the synagogue of Nazareth, applied to himself Isaiah's words. And it's really in Isaiah chapter 61, which is part of third Isaiah. This is what Isaiah says. And basically, Jesus reads this passage in Luke chapter four and says, this is me, you know? So this is what Isaiah wrote. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good tidings to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So Jesus applied that to himself. Hmm. So here we see Isaiah being quoted in the New Testament, and Jesus applies that to himself. Mm -hmm. Jesus depicted himself also as the suffering servant, whom the book of Isaiah describes as bearing on his shoulders the sins and transgressions of the chosen people and the sins of the whole world. I will a little later talk more about these servant songs. And Jesus himself is depicted in a way that you can't mistake Hmm. that this is what Isaiah had prophesied. Yeah. When you look at our liturgy, among the Old Testament books, Isaiah is the most frequently read in the lectionary after the Psalms. During Advent, when we priests and many lay people read the Liturgy of the Hours, the Office of Readings, we have a continuous reading of the prophet Isaiah. So every year we get to read the whole book of Isaiah. I mean, it's most of the book. Yeah. 
And the church understands the prophecy as both of the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. To unlock the meaning of the book of Isaiah, for us, we need the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, that he unlocks the meaning. So even though it had meaning for that time, the historical situation at that time, it had a deeper meaning in reference to Jesus mm-hmm. and in reference to the church, the new people of God. Now, that's faith. But the evangelists themselves and St. Paul, they saw the New Testament. They saw Jesus's life and his passion and all of that foreshadowed in what Isaiah wrote. Hmm. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 14, I mentioned Uh, I quoted verse 14 before. I think it's good to quote more of that because I think this is really an extremely important prophecy that we're all familiar with, a very famous prophecy about a virgin who would bear a child who would be called Emmanuel. Sounds familiar. Yeah. What's the historical context of this? It's the king was Ahaz. And remember, he's the one who Isaiah criticized for trying to ingratiate himself with the king of Assyria and not trusting in God. So this is um, chapter 7, verses 10 to 14. And this is part of the first Isaiah, which is called the book of Emmanuel. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. We hear this every fourth Sunday of Advent, Uh every three years in cycle A, every year on the Feast of Annunciation, March 25th, we hear this reading. We hear it every year on December 20th, just five days before Christmas. God provides King Ahaz with a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Mm -hmm. Now, Isaiah may have been prophesying the more immediate birth of King Hezekiah. Okay. But Hezekiah was a type of Christ. We talked about typology Uh in the Old Testament. Christ's birth more perfectly fulfills the language of this prophecy. Really, when you look at Hezekiah's birth, it doesn't fit. So we really don't know what Isaiah's original intention was. But again, this is inspired by God. Right. Clearly, Jesus perfectly fulfills this. The virginal conception of Jesus, it's a divine work. It fulfills the promise that was given in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And St. Matthew, when he was writing his gospel, he saw this verse in Isaiah as a prophecy of the conception and the birth of Jesus. So that's why he quotes it Mm. uh, 
in his first chapter when he recounts the story of the angel's annunciation to Joseph in a dream, mm -hmm. he explicitly quotes Isaiah 7, 14. <laughs> and of course, Emmanuel means God with us. So even though this is important, okay, we have this oracle, but it has this deeper, more profound, transcendental meaning referring to the Messiah. Though it was spoken by Isaiah, or, or was written down by Isaiah in a particular specific historical context. Scholars who look at this and study it, they can't figure out who it referred to. I mean, some scholars says, oh, it must be referring to King Hezekiah. Mm -hmm. But they, there's nothing that fits, okay, really, until Jesus. Uh -huh. So really, we would say that, that passages like this weren't addressed merely to Ahaz or to Israel, but to humanity. Hmm. The sign God announces is given not for a specific political situation, but it concerns the whole history of humanity. And it's really astonishing when you think about this, this quote from the year 733 BC, that's incomprehensible to scholars, came true at the moment of the conception of Jesus Christ in the womb of Mary, the Virgin. God gave us a great sign intended for the whole world. We can move on to another Emmanuel prophecy in Isaiah, because I think the Emmanuel prophecies are really important. I mean, there's so many, I mentioned you know, 90 times Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament, so I'm not gonna go through all 90 uh -huh. unless you wanna do this for several more shows. Yeah. <laughs> but I just wanna highlight what I think are the most important. Okay. So Isaiah chapter nine, verses one to six. And you're all familiar with this because we hear this at Midnight Mass every year, if you go to Midnight Mass. But there will be no gloom for her that was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, thou hast increased its joy. They rejoice before thee as with joy at the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressors, thou hast broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this birth of a child that's prophesied, a child who has divine attributes, I mean, he's called mighty God, mighty God. Mm -hmm. 
upon this child's shoulders, the government of the world shall rest. Hmm. Well, the early fathers of the church saw this as prefiguring Christ, mm -hmm. that he would reign through the wood of the cross, which he carried upon his shoulders to Calvary. So this idea of upon his shoulder, the government will be upon his shoulder. And again, God revealing through Isaiah the divinity of Christ, mighty God, hmm. prince of peace. I'd like to also mention a reading that uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is, by the way, an optional reading for confirmation masses. Oh, okay. Isaiah describes the spirit coming upon the future Davidic king, this descendant of King David. And it's directly from this text that the church developed the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Directly from this. Hmm. From the stump of Jesse, a shoot will come. So Jesse was the father of David. So the Messiah, the Savior, would come from the line of King David. We hear this uh, reading from Isaiah chapter 11 on the second Sunday of Advent, year A, so every three years. Quick question about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I feel like we don't really see a whole lot of the presence of the Holy Spirit until Pentecost. Are people still receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Well, I think we'd say the prophets were inspired by the Holy sure. Spirit, but really the, the gifts really come you know, the spirit of the Lord being upon Jesus, first yeah. of all, but then only really coming upon his people, all the people at Pentecost. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, why don't we take a little break? And if anybody has any questions, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash Ask Bishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we've got more on the book of Isaiah Coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. We've been talking about Isaiah, we talked about last week, got a lot of the background on it, and then been talking now about the, the relationship between Isaiah and the New Testament and all the different references there. And then you were going to talk about the songs. This servant songs. The servant songs now. Yes. There's the servant There's songs. Four of them. There was the vineyards. What the, was it? Yeah. The song of the vineyard. <laughs> song of the vineyard. Okay. Right. And then we looked at some of the Emmanuel I prophecies. really should be taking notes here. Yeah. No, that's okay. I'll, I get to listen back to it as yeah. much as I want though. So, <laughs> so the servant songs, uh, these are in, Deutero Isaiah, second part of the book of Isaiah, uh -huh. and the servant of the Lord, okay, has a key role in making known and putting into effect God's saving plan. So there are these four passages about the servant and his mission. These are the songs of the servant. There's a lot of debate about the identity of the servant. Okay. Was he a particular individual like the 
the king of Judah, hmm. or maybe was it Isaiah himself, the prophet, or was it a future Messiah? Or was it a collectivity? Did the servant of the Lord stand for Israel or some group within Israel? You know, there's so there's a lot of opinions of scholars on this. Of course, as we go through these, you'll see how the Christian interpretation being that this is a dis- description of Christ. Was Isaiah being persecuted at the time? Well, this was second Isaiah, so Isaiah was already gone. Right. Yeah, he was. So this is a new, I mean, maybe one of his disciples or okay. whoever wrote second Deutero Isaiah, we don't know. Huh. But he was someone who had the same kind of um, ideas as the prophet himself. Okay. A hundred or 200 years earlier. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Because remember, this was during the time of the exile. So this is in Babylon. So, and Isaiah lived during the time of the Assyrians the okay. empire. So, yeah. The first song we find in Isaiah chapter 42, verses one to nine. We hear this on the feast, read on the feast of the baptism of the Lord, and also every Holy Week on Monday of Holy Week. So, when you listen to this, I think you'll recognize it. Chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not fail or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is God speaking about his servant, okay? And this is a mysterious figure. But God says, behold my servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Well, think of the baptism of Jesus. Mm. God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh You know, he says the same thing, in whom my soul delights. So, and the spirit upon him at the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove. So, who this servant was originally, we don't know, but it certainly seems to fit Jesus. So, the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles see this servant in this first servant song as a prophecy about Jesus, in whom the Father is most pleased. Also, we hear the Father saying that at the Transfiguration, too. And also that part where it talks about he will not cry or lift up his voice, a bruised reed he will not break, that's all quoted in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter Mm. 12, to show that 
in Jesus, the prophecy of the servant is fulfilled, Matthew mm -hmm. chapter 12. That expression being a light to the nations, we see that echoed in what Jesus says about being the light of the world, the light of the nations. Also in the canticle of Zechariah, the Benedictus, he will be a light to the nations. And then you remember in Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, when the messengers came from John the Baptist to ask whether Jesus, whether he's the one who is to come, whether he's really the Messiah, and how did he reply right out of the words here of Isaiah, the eyes of the blind are opened, prisoners are released, you know, hmm. all those things. So, um, so really that's how in the New Testament, this first servant song is seen as fulfilled in Christ. The second Psalm is Isaiah chapter 49, verses one to six. And by the way, this second servant song we always read on Tuesday of Holy Week. And it's also read on the Nativity, Feast of the Nativity of St. John the Baptist. Huh. And you'll know why when you hear it. <laughs> okay. uh, Listen to me, O coastlands, and hearken, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So the servant speaking here, called by God, even from his mother's womb, and he will extend salvation to the ends of the earth. Notice the, the priest Simeon in the temple applied to Jesus the expression, light to the nations. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, coming up, we are going to have some more about the prophet Isaiah. Remember that you can call or text your questions for Bishop to the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have more right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services that save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, here with our bishop who's been explaining the prophet Isaiah and talked about the first two servant songs. 
And Bishop, would you mind sharing about the third song? The third song of the servant is in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 to 9. And this is read on Palm Sunday every year and on Wednesday of Holy Week. So I'm sure you'll recognize this. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him that is weary. Morning by morning he wakens, he wakens my ear, to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been confounded. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. So the sufferings of Christ were foreseen. It's part of God's providence, the outwork, the working out of his will. Notice the silent fortitude of the servant here, his docility. We see this recalled, this servant song recalled in the account of the Passion. In Matthew's Gospel, where we read, they spat in his face and struck him, and some slapped him. Roman soldiers spat upon him and took the reed and struck him on the head. So, again, these are what we read in the uh, third song of the servant. Mm-hmm. And the final one, the fourth servant song, is heard every year on Good Friday. Okay. It's Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, all the way to chapter 53, verse 12. Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. As many were astonished at him, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the sons of men. So shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they shall see, and that which they have not heard they shall understand. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or comeliness that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet We esteemed him stricken, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When he makes himself an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Of course, this is the longest and the most famous of the servant songs, the suffering of the servant. And there's priestly imagery here. The servant makes a sacrificial offering Mm -hmm. of his own body. Jesus revealed his redemptive mission to be that of the suffering servant prophesied here by Isaiah. Jesus said, the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Hmm. And that's what this is all about. Leading up to his death, what did Jesus do? He maintained the silence of the servant before the high priest. He was silent before Pilate. He was mostly silent and they were amazed at his silence. And he became disfigured through the ordeal of the trial and and the abuse that he had, all that's described here. He receives even the burial that's described here Hmm. when the wealthy Joseph of Arimathea placed him in his tomb. Well, verse 9 said he'd make his grave with a rich man in his death. Mm -hmm. Jesus' death as a ransom for many, Early the early church's theology of atonement, the last supper even jesus stated that his blood will be poured out for many okay Hmm. in atonement for our sins his death atones for sin and reconciles mankind to god and he has borne our griefs these aren't his own personal sins that were responsible the servant's sufferings are not due to his own personal sins as isaiah said he has borne our sins Uh Uh, so it's atonement for the sins of others Now, Kyle, there are many other important passages, examples, but I think I covered what I'd say are the most important in our Christian faith. In the book of the prophet Isaiah, we really have a summary of our faith in the different types and figures uh, in this Old Testament book. Well, I got to say, I feel very silly thinking that we'd be able to cover all four major prophets in one episode. And we, we're, I feel like we're just scratching the surface of Isaiah in two episodes. Uh, but that was sorry about very that. educational. No, it's great. Do you want me to cut back for Jeremiah? <laughs> no, maybe we should allot three episodes. I don't know. Honestly. But like you said, this is, you said this is the most important of the, the right. four major and prophets. It, it's the longest so, book. Yeah. It's the longest book. I mean, 66 chapters. Right. And I, I really only touch the surface but hopefully it helps the listeners to maybe appreciate more the old testament especially the prophets and this prophet isaiah 
and how the first Christians who had these scriptures saw them fulfilled in Christ. And the evangelists themselves, yeah. you know, saw these fulfilled in Christ. Is there a resource that you're aware of that kind of breaks this down? The, the 90 different things that match up in the New Testament, is that well, documented somewhere? And- well, actually, if you got a Bible that has notes, usually it will, like if you look at the Navarre Bible, mm-hmm. And you read through the commentary on the prophet Isaiah, in the margins, uh-huh. it'll have references to New Testament passages. Okay. I mean, it's very tedious. I mean, <laughs> I've only touched the 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 major ones. Uh-huh. I mean, there are a lot more. I mean, there's hundreds more. Yeah. You know, I said there's 400 yeah. implicit right. references. So, <laughs> and 90 that are explicit. So, plus, when you look in those those columns, which refer to New Testament passages, there's also other old testament passages okay where you find you know like in jeremiah uh-huh. him saying maybe the same thing that isaiah said mm-hmm. or something real similar so there's notes about um that's why we always take the bible as a whole right you know all right well thank you again bishop this has been great can we get your episcopal blessing before we go sure the lord be with you and with your spirit Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Credit Union.